The following podcast is a She Did It and SydneyNanberg.com production. Welcome back to the She Did It podcast. My name is Sydney Nanberg, and I am the creator and founder of She Did It and SydneyNanberg.com, your self care and mindset resource. If you are listening to this, thank you because you are committed to investing in your own personal growth and development, and I appreciate you being a contributor to this community. My intention is to consistently share valuable information and lessons to help you live a fulfilling life. I want you to come here looking for inspiration and leave with the tools you need to take on whatever it is you are going after. Achieving fulfillment starts with taking the first step, and you're doing it. Hey guys, it's Sydney, and as always, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the She Did It podcast. I am grateful to have each and every one of you part of this incredible community. If you are finding these episodes valuable, I would be so appreciative if you would go ahead and leave a review. So today is going to be a very valuable episode. I am speaking with Dan Shabell on how he created life on his terms through many life obstacles. You may know Dan from some of his work, such as his books, Back to Human, Me 2.0, and Promote Yourself, or even his podcast, Five Questions with Dan Shabell. He is a New York Times best-selling author among many other accomplishments, but we are really going to get into the backstory as well. Dan actually suffered from anxiety and bullying in his younger years back in Boston, yet he consistently pursued whatever it took to help him grow and learn. The -the out-of-the-box steps on his journey prove that he was determined to achieve a fulfilling life while helping others, and that is exactly what he has accomplished and is continuing to do so to this day. Something that I really admire about Dan is his vulnerability and openness about his experience. Speaking with him was so easy, and he really provided the truth about what it takes to build your own life. talked about the reality of entrepreneurship, pushing through roadblocks, and his story is going to inspire you to take action. Dan was absolutely insightful, full of tips, so get ready to take some notes and let's dive in. Welcome, Dan. I'm so glad that we connected and I'm really grateful to have you here today. Really happy to be here with you. So you are a New York Times bestselling author, serial entrepreneur, Fortune 500 consultant, millennial TV personality, global keynote speaker, career and workplace expert, and startup advisor. You are really doing it all and making an impact, and I find it to be absolutely inspirational. And and I want to dive into all of that, but before, I love to get everybody's backstory. So would you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey? Absolutely. So I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, and you know, like you, like a, a lot of other people, I didn't fit in growing up. I got bullied. I, you know, was constantly getting in trouble. So I was always on the principal's bench in elementary school. And then it took until maybe third or fourth grade where, you know, I started to settle down. I got, you know, some, you know, therapy at a young age and got started to get on the right track. But yeah, I was kept back a year in kindergarten. So I repeated kindergarten and that was the best decision my parents have ever made because I was just, you know, too slow and not, not kind of with it. And, and, uh, if I, if I jumped to first grade, I would have been bullied much worse because, because of that, because people like to prey on the weak, on the slow, Mm -hmm. on, you know, on people who, you know, suffer from anxiety as I found out when I was younger and after third grade, I started to kind of snap into it and, and, and kind of figure myself out a little bit more. And then as I got older, I started to make, 
you know, closer friends. And then it wasn't until in middle school where they split up the middle school into two separate middle schools. So I lost a lot of my friends and I felt kind of isolated. And those were really tough times. Mm -hmm. And then high school was just really, really brutal. I mean, even my, my friends made fun of me. I mean, even elementary school, my my teacher would make fun of me, would uh, penalize me, would put me in a closet. I mean, that oh stuff God. probably doesn't happen anymore. But I mean, you should hear stories from my my mom and, and her generation. I mean, teachers used to like spank you and slap you. I mean, it's uh, mm-hmm. we've certainly come a long way from that. But yeah, definitely really tough. Um, but then as I got older, as you know, I think one of the good things that my, my parents did is they got me working at a young age. So age 13, uh, my parents pushed me to get a job working at my temple as a caterer. And there I learned what I think is the most important skill is how to deal with other people, right? Because that's something you always have to do no matter what, what career you select in life. And so I just learned how to deal with people, especially difficult people, because I would work on weddings and bar mitzvahs and Shabbat dinners. And, you know, in my town, I, you know, growing up in Newton, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of wealth. And so with that comes its own issues with, you know, people thinking they're entitled people, you know, uh, not treating others with respect, especially those who are serving them. And so I learned out, I learned a lot of that. You know, I think the service business is invaluable. Everyone who I talked to who says they had a, they were a waitress or a waiter, a bartender, or in any service job. Even I had a friend who was the youngest uh, manager ever at McDonald's at the time, and he got bullied so bad. This was in, when he was in high school. But I'm telling you, I think the skills he learned as a manager, even as in a like a cashier at one point at McDonald's, has made it an extraordinary impact on his life. I mean, he, he's been incredibly successful as an executive at multiple brand name companies. Um, so for me, I didn't really come, I was always happy to graduate. So elementary school, happiest person to graduate, middle school, happiest person to graduate, uh, (laughs) and high school by far the happiest person. I mean, my favorite day of high school was graduation because I knew I wouldn't have to look back and repeat that again, which was great. But high school um, it wasn't until my last year of high school where it really, my life started to change because, you know, the hardest thing to do is get into a good college. And now, I mean, every year it gets harder, right? I mean, acceptance rates haven't really changed. There's been, a, there's a lot of competition and thus there's so much pressure. Uh, you know, I talked to my friends who are parents and, and other, you know, uh, grown adults who have children and they're saying that their kids who are even even like younger grades, like just trying to get into school or do their homework or take tests is so insane now. I mean, there's just so much pressure on from the parents, from their peers, from the school system, from teachers. It's just coming from everywhere. And so basically what happened with me is I had an internship during my senior year and I was cold calling for a whole summer and I didn't make any sales. So I was zero for like a thousand during the summer. And I learned, of course, how to face rejection. <laughs> and I also, I also learned that I didn't really want to be in sales, especially for a product or service that I, I wasn't passionate about because I was selling phone auditing and cable, um, cable service for 
you know, cable internet. And I just was not pumped about either. And I think that had a huge impact on my ability to sell. You know, I just selling now, it's it's much easier for me because I really believe in what I'm doing. And that that was a big lesson learned. And I think when I got deferred from the college of my choice, that was a really, really big eye-opening experience to me. I mean, really what that said is things aren't easy. You gotta really work hard. You gotta take things very seriously. So what happened was I ended up getting straight A's my last semester of high school. I wrote a letter to admissions. I interviewed on campus. I basically marketed myself to the school. And this was the first real time where I was self-marketing before people were talking about personal branding. And I was just so like not going to give up and just really push myself into the school and then I got into the school, and the first thing I said to myself was, okay, it's costing a lot of money to go to the, this private school. You know, I got to work really hard, and I can start anew, right? That was my attitude, which I think was very healthy, is, okay, I'm, I'm not the person I was in high school. This is a new experience. I'm going to put all my effort into this and get a return on my return on my investment. I didn't say return on my investment back then, yeah. but, I worked, but it was like really intense. So I got straight A's my first semester, which was extremely key. Uh, and actually straight A's, straight, getting straight A's the first semester has impacted my life even now, right? Because it was validation saying, hey, if I put the effort in, I can achieve a positive result. Yeah. And, and once that happened, then I just kept up in the ante, right? I, I was now wanting to get really involved on campus. I ended up starting my first business sophomore year of college. So it was a website wow. design and development firm. Uh, and I would help local companies in the Boston area. And at the same time, I was like, you know, in the original board of the Entrepreneurship Society at school. I was involved in the Marketing Association. I got involved in every student government, everything. I was, in, I was a leader in seven organizations. And then I, at the same time, I was getting straight A's in school. So everything was supporting everything else and, and con consistently validating me and get, encouraging me. And uh, it was just a really exciting period. And at the same time, I was running the company. And at the same time, I, was, I had seven more internships between freshman year and senior year. So I was just completely all in. And my attitude was not just to get a return on my degree, but it was also I had a lot of fear because, you know, a lot of marketing graduates, I, I did undergraduate business school, and a lot of marketing graduates were struggling to get um, good jobs when they graduated. And a lot of them had to take sales jobs. And, of course, I had a traumatic experience in high school cold calling companies. So I was like, I don't want to do sales. And so that was a big motivator. And, and as a result, I just learned how to market myself really well. I would go to interviews, like I interviewed with, you know, all sorts of companies in the Boston area, and I'd have a CD. I was very early into burning CDs. In fact, in high school, when the, when you would burn a CD with music, yeah. I, I was very early into I did it. I, I would burn CDs for the varsity soccer team. Right. And I was just known as the guy who knew how to burn CDs. Like I, I got the, that skill before everyone else. Uh, and you know, no one has CDs anymore. And then there was like the mini disc craze yeah. in college, but, uh, but so I was always kind of 
forward looking, always trying to adopt new things, figure them out and then teach other people. So that was something that I was always really good at. But for self-marketing, it was I had the CD portfolio of work. Uh, I had the resume. I had the cover letter. I have the references document. I just was very good at selling myself because I thought it was a necessity. I didn't want to end up as a marketing graduate with a sales job. So I, I tried to do everything I could to get the best resume and turn myself into the best product possible. That was my mentality back then. I didn't, still did not call it personal branding. I called it self-marketing. And uh, it was a skill that I, I, I would say I perfected before anyone else. And, and so I would just keep getting all of these internships. And then when I graduated, I, it actually took me eight months to get my job at, when I graduated. I started early. I wanted to get into you know, marketing development programs. I was really eager to do that. I ended up probably over 40 interviews total, but for one company, it was 15 interviews for three different jobs. I got rejected from the first two jobs, and I had like a two-page resume. I had everything that you could imagine, as I'm telling you, and it was still hard, and that's a big Mm -hmm. lesson I learned early on. It's like there's nothing guaranteed. There's no entitlement. You have to just keep pushing as hard as you can, but you know, I remember reading an article, I think it was six years ago in the New York Post of a woman who sent 1,300 resumes and didn't get a job. My mentality was the opposite of that back then. I'm going to find the company and the type of role I want, and I'm going to put all of my effort into it. And it ended up working. And I know that because, so what happened was that last round of interviews, um, the manager was like, oh, let's just have a casual meeting in the cafeteria. So we had a casual meeting and he was really impressed because I treated it like an interview, even though he didn't, he didn't think it was an interview. And I was competing with a marketing director at Polaroid who had lost his job because obviously Polaroid back then was not doing well. And I got, ended up getting the job, but here's, what's really interesting. So my second to last interview, I'll always remember this. This was game changing is, so I, I was work I had internships at Reebok and, and Lojack and Lycos, Lycos as like it was kind of shutting down. It was like, you know, it went from four floors to I think one or two floors by the end of my internship. I didn't get paid at all at Lycos. I didn't get, I think I got academic credit at Reebok, but I didn't really do much. So he's looking at my resume. I'm like watching his eyes as he's looking down my resume to like ask me questions about my experience. And his eyes go down. It skips over the internships where I had so much experience. Like it, it was so obvious, right? There was like five bullet points uh, under uh, like Lojack. I did a whole marketing plan for them, like a lot of great work and went right to wow. Reebok. And he was most excited about Reebok, yet I did the least at Reebok because Reebok, when I was an intern there, Adidas bought them. Like my manager had left the group. Like I was getting no experience. I honestly don't think I did anything for, for Reebok. I really don't. Like it was, it I just made up, you know. <laughs> Manage so-and-so like I, I came up with stuff because I had to make it seem like I did something at Reebok, but I really didn't and And so his eyes went right to Reebok and it it when when he asked me about Reebok It changed. I think it partially changed the course of my career because I'm like, oh wow Brands are important brands matter brands open up doors and create opportunities And so right. like if you look at my bio or anything I do it's, there's always a brand in every sentence. Like I'm, I'm literally obsessed with brands because of that moment, because that moment showed me that if people don't know you, they better associate and trust you based on a brand. 
right? You don't know me, but you've heard of Oracle. You don't know mm-hmm. me, but you've heard of, I don't know, Forbes. And through that association, you're more likely to trust me or talk to me. And to me, that, that was game-changing that, you know, I would say partially, partially I got the job because I interned at Reebok because that gave me credibility even though I didn't even do anything there. Um, and then that set me out on, you know, working at EMC is the company I worked at. I went from product marketing to online marketing. I got my online marketing job because, because of ageism. So I pretty much got a promotion and in a better group because of ageism, because the senior director of marketing was like, oh, you're young. You must understand technology. You know, join our, you know, online marketing group. And I'm like, that's awesome because the product marketing, like EMC products are so complex that I didn't really understand it. So I was kind of going through the motions a little, doing the best I can, but it wasn't, it wasn't really playing to my strengths. So, so ageism, ageism actually helped me move in the right group where I could really do a great job. But then what was crazy is, so I remember there was a big training session uh, that I had to enroll in. It was eight hours on, I think a Thursday and it was to go over the 1300 EMC products and services. And it was literally, it was depressing. Like it was just so, so complicated. Um, I came home and I remember saying to myself, there's gotta be something else out there for me. Like this cannot be my life. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I went into this whole, you know, two hours of soul searching and Googling and trying to figure out what else could I do with my life? That's how horrible the, the, the class was, right? It was just so intimidating and stressful and it made me rethink my life. Uh, so thank God for that. And so I was typing in like self-marketing, all this stuff. And I came to an article that was written by Tom Peters for the cover of Fast Company in August 1997 called The Brand Called You. And it's an article I re- reread every year. And it re- the article really inspired my whole career, or, or at least the first third of my career, and, and helped me, re- helped me um, validate my skills as somebody who could market myself and my abilities, which, it, which is a skill that helps you across everything. And so I read the article, and it said, you have to be the chief marketing officer for the brand called you. At the end of the day, success lies in your hands. And then there's one part of the article that a lot of people probably didn't read or, or really pay attention to, but it said something like the mm-hmm. smartest people are able to craft their own unique roles within their companies. So basically that inspired me to start, well, before that, October 2006, I started Driven to Succeed, which was a blog where I was writing you know, 10 to 12 articles a week on how to get internships, how to network, all the stuff I learned during college, what to do, what not to do. And then once I read Tom's article, which is the reason why anyone cares about Fast Company today, it launched the whole magazine, it it popularized it. And I turned my blog from Driven to Succeed, which still exists today if you Google Driven to Succeed, to Personal Branding Blog. And I was 10 times more motivated because I was like, okay, Tom is, I think now he's, he's definitely in, at least in his eighties now. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was in my, you know, I was like 23 years old. I'm like, oh my God, I, there's no one else out there who's my age. Who's talking about personal branding. I'm going to be the personal branding spokesperson for my generation. Like it felt obvious. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and it was like this moment where it's like, okay, like I know I can make this work. 
like even though like you know i only i went to undergraduate business school like i didn't you know social media was so new back then the, the community was really small right. but i knew it i like once i read his article it basically what his article did was validate everything i've been doing in college like all constantly isn't it interesting yeah isn't it interesting how it's sometimes it's those little things that we come across in life that totally change the trajectory of our path and of the way that we think even it's yeah. interesting yeah, it's so crazy. Even with like Instagram, like I didn't care about Instagram for, you know, I only started caring about Instagram for the past maybe 14 months. The only reason yeah. why I put effort into it, and it sounds crazy, is because my friend Jordan, he looked at my Instagram account randomly and he was like, why don't you have a check mark? And then literally I, I was like, I got to get a check mark. And then I got the check mark. And then I felt like a responsibility to leverage the check mark and then grew the account from, from 4,000 to whatever, 80 something thousand today. So, yeah. uh, so it's literally like these one little, com this one little conversation or one message right. or one right. article that can send me on this whole path and to direct all of my energy to, it's really interesting. Uh, but anyways, so I started the blog and then after six months, like, or during that six months, I was writing again, 10 to 12 articles a week on nights and weekends, moonlighting. Like I didn't know it could become a business in the back of my head. I'm like, huh, maybe, but I was so into mm -hmm. it and I felt such a responsibility and privilege to be able to constantly, you know, write and, and, uh, you know, I didn't really care about the money back then. And then I was like, okay, what's my next move? So I was writing articles for other magazines and then I ended up starting my own magazine called Personal Branding Magazine. So I, I just wanted to own everything personal branding. My original marketing goal was if you Googled personal branding, you couldn't avoid me. And I did that for years. So I had all the results. The homepage, what, the Google search results for personal branding was almost my homepage. And uh, that led to all of the media interviews that I, I did in the first third of my career and, and all the attention is just that one strategy. And that one strategy, of course, oh. is connected to writing the content and doing all the social media. And you got to do everything right to be able to pull off that strategy. It's not just like, oh, I'm just going to appear in Google. So, but that led to a lot of the early opportunities because I was really, or I was positioned as being the young gun who understood personal branding was that he was using it. And then Fast Company, 10 years to the day Tom Peters' article came out, a week after they profiled Tim Ferriss, author of the four hour work week, they profiled yep. me. My company had no idea what I was doing outside of work. I didn't think I had to tell them. I wasn't really making money from it really. And a vice president, this is really early in the days of social media. No one was doing this. Like Dell was doing it, like just a few, handful of big companies. A executive at EMC sent an email or, or put a, something in their message board. And then it ended up getting back to my manager. I, my manager called me and starts crying. He's like, can't believe all of this because he starts Googling me and seeing all these articles and everything that I produced, like a million search results even back then. And, and that was like a crazy moment because I had to have a meeting with this vice president and I was still very young in the company. And this VP was very intimidating. Uh, but I was still in my like self-marketing mode. Like I had my own press kit. Like I was taking it to such another level. And I always remember he's like, huh, we, we, you know, we want to get involved in social media. This was in 2000, end of 2007. We want to get involved in social media. Clearly, you know something that we don't. Uh, talk to the head of PR, see maybe if, you know, there's a fit there. So I remember 
I remember the, the head of PR, Michael, I came into his office and I was so prepared. I had a CD portfolio work. I had the press kit. I had all these materials. I had a printed out article. I wrote an article for Brand Week magazine, which is very hard, was very hard to get into back then. And I came, I presented it all to him and he like, he didn't even know what to do with me. He was just like, holy crap. Like, how is this possible? You're, you know, 23 years old, whatever. And then I got the job and then that by getting the job, it all, it validated everything I've been doing and it connected to Tom's article. Like I was saying before about the smartest people create their own unique positions. So I created the first ever social media position in a fortune tour in a company back in 2007. And then that inspired me to try and figure out, huh, maybe I have something here. And I, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I want to write a book before I'm 50 or something or 60 or at the end of my career. So I was like, huh, this book thing's very interesting. Like I'm hearing a lot of people in the social media space writing a book because that was my, those are my communities. And so I went to this talk and this shows you that like bullying continues because, because once the Fast Company magazine article came out, I got, you know, cyber bullied. But then I remember I went to this talk and this guy, Josh, I won't say his last name, he gave a talk about, you know, his book and all this stuff. So I went up to him afterwards and I said, oh, how'd you get the book deal? Like, what, what can you teach me about this? And he literally laughed in my face. And this is somebody who many years later has asked for favors, et cetera. But the point is that he laughed in my face. So I, was, I didn't let that bother me too much. Instead, I was like, okay, okay. somebody, there's enough people in the social media space getting book deals now that I gotta, I'm going to find someone who will give me advice, will support me. So this guy, Paul, who is also another blogger, he was like, oh, you can do it. Just try, you know, reach out, reach out. And uh, then it went, it went through this whole thing of not knowing how to do it. You know, a lot of my skill set is self-taught, right? I never really, I kind of learned how to do marketing research when I was at, at school, but not really. I never, I self-taught like public speaking, self-taught with writing. So a lot of this stuff is self-taught. Uh, I had to figure it out on my own. Writing a book proposal, I had never done that before. I had to figure it out. Um, so I, I started writing a book proposal. I reached out because everyone's like, oh, you need to pitch agents. I got rejected by 70 out of 70 agents. So no agent would represent me back then. Then wow. I reached out to two publisher, three publishers, two rejected me. And the last one, Kaplan said yes in January, 2008. And I remember, I remember where I was. I re actually recorded the call because I couldn't believe it, that it was happening. And it, think that was possible even though I was curious to see if it was possible and you were and, relentless you kept going after it but still but, it, the, you, that industry yeah. is insane yeah. and you're young and right. you don't know what's possible uh, so many years later I found from the publisher that they took it because I was I was pretty much the right person at the right time like it wasn't that I had a million person following or anything back then so mm -hmm. then I got the best advice from a now friend uh, David Meerman Scott, who wrote a, who wrote perhaps the biggest social media book in terms of sales ever, The New Rules of Marketing PR. I think it sold half, at least half a million copies. And he mm -hmm. said, the publisher's not going to do anything. You have to do everything on your own if you want to make it successful. And so I did it, and, and that's what led to the success of the first book. And then I started giving speeches, and then eventually I quit my job. And it goes kind of back to what I was saying, like, my parents gave me good advice. You know, they kept me back in kindergarten. They told me to work early. And then the next big piece of advice is don't just quit your job because you want to quit your job. Be thoughtful about it. So that's why it took me three and a half years moonlighting, working for a mega company 
uh, before I quit my job. And then I ended up signing them as a client anyways. And, and then once I made the leap, then I had just more and more time to focus on building everything up. And, and then I ended up switching my business because originally I, I basically had a personal brand consultancy and then I, I just started to not like it as much as I did when I first started. So I switched it and I had a choice. I could either focus on branding and marketing or I could focus on human resources. So it was either like, you know, helping people market themselves or changing corporate culture, improving the workplace and, and supporting people's careers. And so I chose, even though if I chose marketing, I probably back then would have made more money potentially. I chose HR because of the human capital component of like helping improve the workplace and people's lives. So I ended up choosing that and then I built, you know, what is now my career based on that. But I think what I did was after my book came out, I continued and I, and I came up with a kind of a through line to my career of helping people across every phase of their career from student to CEO, right? That because every book I write helps people get to the next phase of their career, mm -hmm. tackling their biggest issue. So me 2.0 is the first book on how to use social media to get your first job. And I was writing that as after I got my first job. And mm -hmm. then the next one was promote yourself. That's basically how to get ahead at work. Uh, and mm -hmm. you know, what skills are most important and it ended up being soft skills. And at the same time, I was, you know, focused on research. So the research got embedded in all my materials and became something I loved. And I think that one of the biggest lessons I learned that I'm sure you can relate to is everything that I've, I've done, really, I started off doing for free. Everything. The blog free, the magazine free. Uh, my first re few research studies were free. My first 30 speaking gigs were free. Free, free, free. Everything started off with me not making money from something in order to acquire skills and the network and credibility. And then, and then eventually having that turn into a profit. So, but, but not forcing it to be a profit, profitable exercise or project. So I, I think that that's one of my, the big takeaways from my career. And then the other takeaway that I always tell people is, you know, let action be your compass to a more fulfilling life. And so like, I just did so many things when I was younger. So I figured out, you know, what I like, what I don't like, what the type of people I want to work with, the, the size of the company. Do I want to start my own company? A lot of that got answered when I was younger because I did so much at a young age. So I think there's no replacing experimentation and experimentation really helps you figure everything out and there's no other way around it. There really is not. I mean, you'll never know if you like a, a food or a sport or an industry unless you put your foot in it or unless you eat it or unless you travel to another okay. country. You don't know if you'd rather live in Hong Kong or, or Brazil if you've never been there. So I think that experience and experimentation are really paramount to, you know, living your potential, getting on a, a path that makes sense for you. And I think more and more what I what I've been researching, I've now I launched my 50th research study uh, a few oh weeks ago. So that's 50 research studies in, in about seven years. I've now done 2100 interviews or more. Uh, and that started off my interview career started off interviewing people you've never heard of before professors right yeah. and then over time i built 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 and and uh, now it's been you know several thousand i've interviewed a lot of people that i never thought i'd be able to be in touch with so 
a lot of what I've realized is unless if you don't put yourself out there, if you don't start, you know, and for me, from my branding background, if you don't start to align yourself with the right people, if you don't test things out, I'm never like, huh, should I reach out to that person anymore? Because every time I reach out, the probability of me, of me getting in touch with someone has gotten higher. Right. And so like, I have no fear of reaching out because most of my career is built on reaching out. And anyone who says, you know, people who say, oh, like, don't send you you a random email. A lot of the biggest opportunities in my life have come from random emails. So I, I, I try and ignore it. So if I've lived something and have gotten a positive result and someone tells me not to do something, I ignore it because I've gotten a positive result. And so over the years, I've, I've realized what advice I should take and, and ignore based on previous experience. And I feel like that will happen more and more as I get older. And yeah, I think that my mission now based on, you know, I started a research company, I wrote another book called Promote Yourself, and then I, and then I sold the research company. And now I have a new book called Back to Human and launched a podcast fa- called Five Questions with Dan Chabell. So I'm trying to take the best of what I've loved throughout my career and have those as pillars right now that I can focus on because it's what I enjoy. It's what I'm good at. But then at the same time, I also want to focus on things that I want to invest more time in now and especially in the future, like mental health in the workplace is the next frontier for me because it's still in its infancy. Only 5% of employees uh, have the courage to go to human resources to talk about mental health. So I feel like we're really early on yet, in my opinion, it's one of the most important topics in our culture and it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue. And I know that's something that you focus on with like trying to prevent, you know, you know, anti-bullying and preventing suicide and, and you seeing suicide rates escalate and mental health problems escalate, especially for young people right now, in terms of people like I suffer from anxiety, in terms of people suffering from anxiety, each generation is suffering more and more. So I see that being a huge opportunity, especially because, you know, I've suffered too. I can relate to all of those people at some level. Yeah. You know, anxiety and mental health, it's, it's, it's a huge problem now. And I feel like in the workplace, it's something that's not acknowledged or talked about because you're put in that place to do your one task, right? And, you know, that's what you're supposed to focus on. That's what you're getting paid for. And that's what matters to the company. And I think that it is really important that you shed light on the topic because it can impact so many people's lives because there are so many people out there who are unhappy. And I think, you know, it goes a lot of it goes back to a lot of the pressure that we feel and a lot of it, you know, bringing this full circle stems from our childhood. And, you know, how you said you were bullied, I was bullied. But I also think, you know, whether you were bullied or not, things happen to us throughout our lives that shape who we are today. For example, you know, you were bullied and, and I think that that built, you know, some sort of resilience in you that, you know, you never gave up and you kept going because for me, at least with that mentality, you know, I'm having been through that. It's like, I'm resilient because I really didn't feel like I had anything to lose. And it's like, what do you have to lose by asking? What do you have to lose by doing something different? I had already felt like I was losing my entire life. And then when you get to the workplace and, you know, no matter what, op- like I said, no matter what obstacle it is you're going through, it's something that's not, yeah, people are afraid to talk about it for, for whatever reason. So I think it's, it's amazing that you're doing something about it. And I think it's amazing throughout your, your entire journey, you know, how you kept, you were persistent and how you kept moving forward and how, you know, no matter what, you just kept learning and learning and learning because that's the most important thing. And whether you face failure, you know, you have to learn from it. Like I always say, you know, celebrate your failures. It's, it's important because because it's what gets you to the next level. And I think that it's interesting to hear, you know, 
obviously you've become successful and you have your book and you do speaking events and you have your podcast and all these other incredible things that you're trying to do. And, you know, it, it takes a lot, it takes a lot of resilience. And, um, you know, I, I think that, I think that this is all extremely valuable and I want to talk about some of the obstacles though, because it's really hard to go through, you know, all of these different, all these different learning experiences. Like, how do you know what to do? You know, you're bound to face failures. So what are some of the biggest obstacles that you faced along the way and how did you get through them? What was your mindset? Yeah. I mean, the biggest obstacles I've faced are, you know, doing something successfully and then feeling like there's a, a great reset. So like mm-hmm. first book did well and then I, I had to like beg and claw. I didn't beg, but like I clawed my way to getting a second deal and then that went well. And then the third, the third deal, literally every publisher said no. And oh man, I, it was so tough because I remember I was in physical therapy for like eight months and I got an MRI and we were waiting on a big publisher to respond and, and they had given me multiple editors and it's this whole long story of editors quitting and moving and, and me getting pushed from editor to editor to editor. But I felt like I already had the deal because I had been working with them in their editorial group. And then after the MRI, my agent called and, and saying he couldn't believe it, but they said no. And it went, I went into this really, really deep, depression for four days like I you know my light the lights weren't on in my apartment like I just was toast right I was exhausted from months and months and months of fighting to get the deal and and then I I had to figure out a way to get through that right I I didn't want to look at be in the dark forever right? right and and so I came up with a solution my solution back then was small wins Small wins dig you out of big ditches, right? So small win, okay. in my opinion, is writing an article and have it being published on, in this case, Quartz. So like when it was published, it was like, okay, I'm starting to get momentum again. And I'm going to write another article and another article and another article. And then my agent was like, we, we should, you know, go back out with this. And then we went right back out with it. And then I, I'll always remember... I left a meeting with another publisher. I got a call to be on the Steve Harvey show. And it was three and a half hours in Chicago in the green room, waiting and waiting and waiting and anticipating, anticipating and reciting lines again and again and again. And I made a huge mistake (laughs) right before, right before I had to go on set. I looked at my email and that publisher was the last publisher said no. And it was just like, I had to like, ignore that for like 20 minutes and just let the show must go on. Right. I always say that to myself speaking and everything I do, the show must go on. You're in it. You got to do it. And, and then after that experience, I just was like, okay, I got to redo this proposal again. It was like the fourth or fifth time I redid it. And it's like 40, 50 page proposal. And then I, and I did it and I, and I got a, and I got the book deal. And then, you know, like everything else, like when I got, when I finally got into the college I wanted to after being rejected the first time, that ended up being motivation. But I think what's interesting, going back to what you say with bullying, is the way it manifested in my 20s was that I had to prove something. There's no question. I mean, I, I'll be the first to admit I feel it. That's it's, happened to me too. 
it's like I, it's like I can't get validation socially because I'm getting bullied. So it's got it's got to come from work. It's got to come from something. And I and worked work seemed like the best bet because because I knew I'd work really hard. And, you know, I'm known for my agent and all these different people as like one of the hardest working people, which I don't know if okay. I am anymore, but definitely in my 20s. I, I was I was working over 100 hours a week back then. Yeah. Um, and so, no, but I take more breaks now because I've learned that burnout can be a huge issue and and can be be demotivating and hurt relationships. So it's actually this a research study that came out like four months ago or so that showed that. The, a lack of sleep results in worse relationships because if you don't get enough sleep, you take your, you know, dissatisfaction out on other people and it's harder to be social yeah. because you're tired. Yeah. No. So, so all that of that really sense. matters, but that's only through experience. And it's like, you know, mentally, once you've done a lot, you hopefully can look back and be like, okay, I've done a lot. And now everything I do now is a bonus. So you start putting things in perspective. And then for me now in my 30s, I don't really need that same validation to combat the bullying. I think that I needed all of my 20s, literally 10 years of my life to kind of combat most like all the bullying I experienced growing up. I need 10 years to get enough validation and awards and recognition, everything to combat decades of bullying. I think that's interesting too, because, you know, when we're going growing up, we see bullying can affect, it it affects our self-worth and our self-confidence and the way that we see ourselves. Because when everybody, it was for me, you know, everybody around you is telling you you're worthless, you know, you're stupid, you're fat, you're ugly, you're this, whatever it is, you know, you start to really internalize that as as kids. And as you get older, you start to realize the people who were doing that were were actually might've been suffering internally on their own. And, you know, I've had the same thing, you know, I am in my 20s. And my big focus is business and work. And I growing up, I never felt like I was good enough. And I I didn't feel like I, I I just felt less than everybody else. And now I can relate feeling like I have something to prove. However, I also have this passion that you also had. And, um, you know, before we get into I want to talk a little bit about more into entrepreneurship, like we were speaking about before we even got on this episode. But I want to I want to know because of the bullying did you ever find yourself comparing your success to others once you started going? Yeah, I think most people run into this trap. I don't anymore, thank God, but maybe that's because I'm more established, but I do have friends who are very successful and they continue to do it, right? Like so and so has this and I don't. Yeah, I mean it's it's always my hope for other people that they get past that because it becomes very unhealthy mm-hmm. and I don't really like the whole idea is like following in someone else's footsteps. I think like learning from other people, viewing people as role models. Like I view Dan Pink and Susan Cain as two of my role models of people who have done right by others or genuine or trying to really make a difference and are not so caught up with other people, material objects, status. So I, I look at I look at them as models, but I'm not looking to copy them. I'm not going to like you know, make decisions based on what they've done. I'm going to let what they've done inspire me and make me think about what I can do. Um, okay. I think the more people try and copy others or be like others, the more they start living other people's life and not their own. So you become happy. You become unhappy from that. You become unhappy from it. And 
and then you start potentially having regrets later because you didn't do what you knew in your heart that you wanted to do. So it's like I always say, listen to others, but do what's in your heart, meaning that take advice, like pay attention to other people, maybe maybe do certain things that they're doing if it makes sense for you. But like at the end of the day, you know, you need to make your own decisions and don't try and live their life, you know, focus on your own path. And, you know, there is no one path to success. So create your own, right? Create your own, you know, daily Mm -hmm. actions, habits, routines that will hopefully, hopefully amount to something at some point, but don't expect everything to just happen. Right. And again, this is like, these are things that I learned when I was really young. So they've stayed Mm -hmm. with me. It's almost like the, what I think of now is, you know, if, if you don't correct habits at some point, it gets harder to correct them. So like, let's say you're 70 years old and you eat terribly and very unhealthy. Mm-hmm. The probability you're going to be able to change that habit is extremely low, very low. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very low. The older you get, the harder it is to change. You, you become more of who you are as you get older. And just knowing that, uh, making changes now can be extremely beneficial. Like I eat really healthy. I exercise every day. I, now I do boxing every Friday, uh, by doing these things consistently and committing to them it to eat healthy for 50 years and then magically not eat healthy. It's probably not going to happen. Right? Like, but if you've mm-hmm. never eaten salads or, or vegetables and then you're 60 years old, it's going to be hard to eat healthy because you're so used to it. And as humans, we make decisions based on habits because habits are a way for us to psychologically protect ourselves. I agree. What What's one of your best tips for forming better habits? The best tip, I think, is take a habit and small steps create the big actions. Like small steps get you out of big ditches, but small steps or breaking down a habit into more tangible things that you can do slowly can be very helpful. Like, you know, like for eating, you know, if you're eating unhealthy, like eat less, a little bit less or, or insert a vegetable that normally you wouldn't into your meal. You know what I mean? So I I think it's these like small little things that can compound, you know, if you, if you want to become a better writer, write every day, but that could mean that your right, your articles could be a hundred words and then you build up to 200 words, 300 words. So it's these small little actions, taking bigger goals and, and making them and breaking them up. It, it can be very helpful because it's less intimidating and it's more manageable. Yeah. And I think people get really overwhelmed. You know, they think, okay, I have all these habits or a habit to change and it sounds so difficult, but I think breaking it up into little, you know, manageable and actionable steps, it makes all the difference. And I, and that's something that I personally do in my own life. And that's what I tell people. And it just prevents you from feeling overwhelmed. And that's how you reach the next level, in my opinion. And speaking of the next level, I kind of want to just touch on entrepreneurship and, and what it really takes, because you and I were talking about And this kind of this has to do with self care and mental health and everything. But when you're really passionate about something or when you have a goal and you're constantly going after it, whether you're just passionate or you feel like you have to prove something or whatever it is, you're just you just want to accomplish something. Sometimes you're so focused on it that you forget, you know, you not forget, but your priority is that. So it affects relationship relationships. And you had mentioned that also. Um, Tell me about your experience with that, that the 
downsides of entrepreneurship? Well, I, the, I think the biggest downside is that it eats up so much of your time. And right. if you love what you do, like we, we were talking before with the podcast, there is the downside. The downside is loving what you do and being passionate can become an addiction mm-hmm. if you don't create boundaries that can hurt your relationships and relationships are the currency of life. So if your relationships are hurt, that's going to really impact your happiness. So while you might have so much excitement about what you're doing from a business standpoint, which will potentially translate into great success because you're willing to put more hours in, the more hours you put in, it's not like we're going to have a 30 hour work day. Like that's not going to change. We have 24 hours in a day. That's one of the things in life that doesn't change. Taxes, 24 hours in a day. You know, uh, the, these things are just solidified. This is what we what we have to deal with. Um, and that you can't get time back to spend and reallocate. So if you are so passionate about what you're doing, you could run into this trap like I did in my 20s of this is, all, this is what I'm going to be doing. You know, this is – I'm going to let this consume my whole life. And so I think that becomes unhealthy. Uh, but I do think that I'm also thankful. I always joke around. I'm like, I wish I could like kiss my my 22 or 23 year old <laughs> self because if I didn't put in a lot of effort and hours, then I wouldn't be able to do what I do today potentially. Um, but I think at some point you have to create boundaries and and really self manage. I think because if you're an employee, the employer almost manages you. Whereas if you are your own boss, you have to self-manage. And that's why I say in, in Back to Human, my book, is, is you almost have to, you know, if we live and die by our calendars, if it's not on our calendar, it doesn't exist, we have to incorporate personal activities and time for the people we care about in our calendar, period. I mean, that is so important. If, you're, if you look at someone's calendar, you get a sense of who they are, just like their bank account. But with their calendar, if they don't have time for you know, friends and dinners and, and activities and events, then they're really missing out. And then long-term, that's going to have a, a, a worse effect on them. And so I think that over time, and you might not realize this if you're a teenager or you're in your early 20s, but over time, setting boundaries will continue to become more important. And you always have to be conscious of this and not let work take over your entire life. And this is, this is another thing that my parents have told me over the years too. Yeah, and mine as well. And I think that a lot of people, you know, as invested as they are in their business and and their future, and you know, I'm not afraid to admit, I my entire life is dedicated to this and making an impact. And um, it does affect relationships around you because it's like, oh, here I have an idea. Now I'm going to go and work on this idea. And and at the end of the day, though, the things that truly make you happy, well, one, impacting people, knowing knowing that I'm making a difference is is really fulfilling, but also, you know, the people that you're surrounded by. And there's someone said to me the other day, you know, how do I find a work-life balance? Because everybody talks about now, you know, if you want to become successful, you need to dedicate all of your time to what you're doing and sacrifice the things that you enjoy, like, you know, dinners with friends or vacations or happy hours. And for me, I always make time for my family and for my boyfriend. And I, I do things that I love, like, travel. But other than that, you know, my life really is work because I do believe you have to put in the time. And I don't know what you think, but I think that, you know, there 
always has to be a little bit of sacrifice in there though because like you said like if you could go back to your younger self you know you would kiss your younger self because you're grateful for that for the amount of hours you put in so what would you tell someone who's trying to find that balance it's hard right well, also, I, I, I as an yeah. entrepreneur i don't think there's such thing as work-life balance i think Me the way I, I i talk about it is work-life integration so it's think about the people and the activities and the business projects that you want to do and then construct your calendar around that so you're able to do everything. There's no reason why you can't do everything, right? The only thing that holds us back is ourselves. We prevent ourselves from doing what we know we should be doing or, or whatnot. And so I think that write down on a piece of paper right now, like I got my journal here right now, write down, you know, here are the things that I, I, that are important to me, the people that are important to me, the activities that are important to me, maybe the things that I need to do in order to accomplish my business goal. And like I do every year, I put, I have 2009 goals. I've been doing this for six years, right? And on the goals, I have business goals and I have personal goals, right? Like, some of my personal goals are like taking cooking classes, weddings, seeing shows, volunteering, watching movies, traveling to other countries, things like that. Uh, and then business-wise, it's you know interviewing a certain amount of people, a certain amount of research projects, uh, bringing in a certain amount of revenue. So I have I have goals for personal and business, and I think everyone should have personal goals, not just business goals. And then once you figure out your goals, literally open up Outlook or Google Calendar. And, and start to build in uh, activities or meetings or social events or, you know, booking travel or whatever you may do into the calendar to reflect those goals. I love that. I think that that's really great advice. And something else, you know, as you are a successful author and you have your own podcast, five questions where you interview these amazing people and, you know, you're doing all of these incredible things and you have a lot going on. And- And I'm personally a huge believer in routines. And I feel like routines definitely helps with everything that we're talking about. And when you're an entrepreneur, you have to create your own structure and you get the ability to and the freedom to and essentially you're paving your own way to create this life that you want. And I believe that routines help you to become the best version and the happiest version of yourself. I personally have, you know, a nighttime, a very strict nighttime and a morning routine, and it allows me to make better decisions throughout the day that will best benefit me and the other people around me. And I actually say your morning routine starts at night and, you know, I have my journal right here too. So do you have routines in place and what are, what do they look like? Yeah. So I think you nailed it. I think, I think your morning starts the night before. And and this is actually something, so Ryan Serhant, who's on Bravo's Million Dollar Listing New York, he says this too in his book, and he's a great guy, and he's on my podcast as well. Yeah, Yeah. I I firmly believe on that, because here's why it's so important, because if you wake up in the morning and you haven't planned the night before, you're going to be scrambler, which eats up a lot of time. Oh, what should I do now? You right. should put the thought into what you should do in the morning the night before so that when you wake up, you know exactly what to do and you, you take the thinking out of it in a way. And so well, my routines, I have a very similar routine every morning. Okay. My routine every morning, it typically consists of making breakfast, going for a run or doing some workout class, and then reading for about a half hour to an hour. Right. Because my whole business is driven by knowledge. Like right. people count on me for knowledge, like, you know, executives and, and whatnot. So if I don't have the knowledge, if I'm not relevant, 
on a given day, I'm less, I'm worthless in a way. I'm not mm-hmm. worthless, but like I'm not right. as valuable, right? So like I want to be on a phone call and be like, oh, I read about this this morning, and I'm very nerdy. Like I I just I did a presentation yesterday, and I'm like, yeah, like the new Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers are out, and here and we have you know in America right now there's 7.2 million unfilled jobs. Like I, I'm like that. Like I'm very dorky like that. But that's I've owned it at the same time, and I, I, I love and research. You're informed, and you're a big uh, Yeah, and that stems from bullying too. Like everyone was like, "Oh, what do you?" And when I was in my early twenties, what do you know? You're young. Like how do you, you know, right. what do you, where are you drawing the advice from? And so that's when I actually got hooked on research. I, I, I view research as two things: one, as a shield against bullying, because it's like you don't believe me. Here's a stat from Harvard, right? And then the other one was, I always thought of research as like discovering the next dinosaur bone. Like I'm discovering something that people may or may not know. And that's, there's an excitement there, bringing that into the world. So those are the two reasons why I love research. Um, and then, so I do the reading, so it sets me up for the day. And then, you know, depending on the calls or whatnot. And, and what I try and do is I st- try and structure it so I'm either meeting a friend for lunch or, or going to an event at night. I need to do something socially. And every morning I call my parents. I'm an only child, Jewish parents. I call them I, every morning. Yep. Me too. When I don't call them, they're concerned. They're the, t- they're the typical Jewish parents also. It's like, if, if I don't call them, they send me a text and they say, are you okay? And I'm like, yep. I just had something come up. I call them bright and early in the morning. They're an hour behind in Chicago. I call them at like, they told I used to call them at 6 a.m. because my dad's up really early. And now... I have to call at 7 a.m. because now they want to sleep a little bit later. But before I start my day, I'm the same way. Oh, my parents are up at 4 or 5 in the morning. It's crazy. I feel like that's how I'm going to be at their age because I'm already waking up at 6 in the morning and it makes no sense for me to do – like there's no reason why I should make up, wake up at 6. I do like uh, it though. I used to be a night person. Now I'm a morning person. And for yeah. me, I think my productivity is way higher in the morning. I think once it hits – once I'm at like 6 o'clock – I can't really do any thoughtful work. I start to yeah. shut down. Yeah, no, I'm I'm actually the exact same way. That's I think why I schedule everything me, thoughtful in yeah. the morning. That's why. Yeah, I know. But that's just, for, that's I mean, just from knowing myself. Because I know myself, I know what to schedule earlier and later. I feel like when you want to go after what you want, you have to become very self-aware. And a lot of what we talked about, a lot of the tips that you gave and your journey is going to help in- inspire people to become more self-aware because when you know yourself you're able to make better decisions that will best like I said benefit you like your routines for example like you know now that now you you schedule thoughtful things that you have to do or tasks in the morning because you know you're productive in the morning and you know yeah it's the same for me at night after a certain hour I'm done and I love waking up at four o'clock in the morning it's like, like I love being up before the sun rises before anyone's up I can get so much work done and for me I know that works best but there's a lot of people who work best at night and you have to find what works for you. But putting that structure in place and those routines and um, it, it gives you, you need that self-care because if you don't put yourself first in whatever way that it is and whatever, you know, you don't have to have the same routine. No one has to have the same routine. But if you don't put yourself first, you end up getting burnt out and it, it drains you. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that. Again, I think as you get older, as long as you pay attention to yourself, like I understand why I am the way I am. Like I'm ultra self-aware now. Like I understand why I eat. And most of it has to do with anxiety, to be honest. Like, you know, I eat fast. I, you know, um, I, I like 
intense music because of the anxiety. So the anxiety attracts that or creates certain behaviors in me. But like I'm aware of that because I'm paying attention to why and writing notes and keeping a journal of why I do certain things. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a, I have a lot of anxiety too. It probably comes from everything that I'm doing and my upbringing also. But yeah, no, I'm the exact same way. So two more questions. One, what keeps you inspired when, let's say you're having a day where you're like, I don't feel like, like working or I don't feel like doing this or you're kind of, you know, or you're having a good day and, you know, you're, you're feeling inspired. What keeps you inspired? The biggest thing that keeps me inspired is not knowing everything, which means there's always an opportunity to grow. Well, I like that. I like the, I like the way that it's all about perspective. And I, I feel like that's a really good mindset to have because everybody's always looking for, for inspiration. But I feel like looking at it like not knowing everything, that's what scares people the most. But when you look at it not from a fear perspective, it, it shows you how many opportunities are really available. So that's really great advice. And what advice would you give to someone who is, you know, look, has a passion or something that they're interested in doing and they, they don't know what step to take next and maybe there's obstacles or they're afraid of failure. What's the first step that they should take? Write an article about it. Oh, I like that. I, I think writing an article about something you're passionate about is really important because when you do it and when you publish it, it almost creates a, a different level of commitment and it shows, it almost like forces you to be thoughtful about it as well. Writing forces you to be thoughtful, right? So if I'm, I, if I'm like wanting to start a new business, like I'm going to write an article about, you know, why I would start the new business or, or a need in the marketplace that I can fill or, you know, advice for people in that industry and or consumer opinions or something and then by the art of writing and putting something out there makes you more committed makes you more thoughtful and from there that starts to create a little bit more traction or a little bit more effort on your part and then that can build and compound over time everything for me it just started off as writing an article and then another article and then and i think the consistent consistency part is really key like i'm committed to one podcast a week I'm committed to one newsletter a month. I'm committed to one post a day on Instagram. So it's it's getting into this habit of doing things consistently and creating your own schedule. You've done so much and you are I love that you are self-taught and you are consistently filling yourself with knowledge and doing wonderful things that are making an impact in this world and helping others. And thank you so much for sharing it today and being open on the She Did It podcast. But before we leave, would you let everyone know where they can find you? I'm going to link it in the show notes um, and everywhere else, but this is for people who don't read the show notes or anything else. So I want to make sure that they know where they can find you. Awesome. So you can find me at danshawbell.com. That's D-A-N-S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L.com. Or go on iTunes and look at five questions with Dan Shabell. And then my book is Back to Human on Amazon. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here, Dan. This has been so much fun. And I'm so glad that we connected. Absolutely. Thank you, too.